0: Welcome to the Currently Thinking podcast, where we talk about issues that move the world. We discuss current events,
1: business, tech and politics. Our mission, bringing bold visions to your headphones. Are you ready to think with us? I'm Soph. And I'm Barry. And we are your hosts for today. The
0: corona crisis has affected every country's national and foreign policies. It has put governments in very difficult positions, having to navigate the tensions between public health and not only their nations, but also the global economy between the freedoms of their citizens and strict national policies to curtail the spread of the virus, but also between international cooperation and national self-interest to create a vaccine, for instance, to share personal protective equipment and to share ventilators. Not only has the virus affected countries' policies, but it has also affected the currents in society. It has accelerated the rise of specific movements advocating for more government scrutiny, for less stringent COVID measures and solutions to the economic problems caused by the virus. We see extremist views from across the political spectrum taking part in these protests, from right-wing interest groups to left-wing extremists, as well as conspiracy theorists. In this episode of Currently Thinking, we want to answer the following question. Is COVID driving the world towards nationalism? To answer this question, we will look at how the virus has moved the dial on nationalism from two key perspectives, namely government actions and society's reaction to those actions. We will look at how economic power, perceptions of safety and security, as well as competitive pressures have affected countries' actions. And we will also discuss what went on in society when governments took actions. But we won't do this alone this time. We have a lovely guest in today's episode, Andrea Marankovic. She's a political analyst and researcher and will join us in our discussion today. Welcome, Andrea.
2: Hi, everyone. Thank you, much. Thank you, Sophie, for having me with you today. Um, I'm very glad to be discussing this very timely and important issue with you. The
1: reactions to governments' um, COVID measures have been very mixed. And we've literally seen it all. Acceptance, cooperation, but you know, with some skepticism and all out refusal or denial of the legitimacy and intention behind them. And what's interesting with the COVID situation is that we can see opposing views on all sides. Uh, Most starkly tensions between uh, nationalism on the one hand and international cooperation and solidarity on the other. Um, In different narratives that are being used across politics and society in Europe and the US, we also see other dichotomies being used, um, for example, freedom versus restrictions and democracy versus dictatorship. When analysing nationalism in our society, we should acknowledge that nationalism has become a central ideology and practice around the world over the past two centuries. So it is a central feature of contemporary society from, and I'm quoting here, from the structure of the state system into its units that commonly defines themselves as nation-states, to the potency of national movements to affirm states or challenge them. And it should be helpful to differentiate um, this uh, nationalism from patriotism, which is loosely understood as a love for one's nation. So in contrast to patriotism, nationalism generally is considered um, to value membership in a nation more than belonging to other groups. And it gives preference to political representation by the nation for the nation. Again, a quote. So let's look at different forms of nationalism before discussing this a bit further. A certain type of nationalism is exclusionary nationalism, and it, this is seen in political parties that seek to establish um, something called ethnocracies, um, which often have themes like the apparent or supposed threat um, from migration, um, refugees, and Islam. Um, and this takes us to what underlies most of the nationalist rhetoric today, um, exclusion or solidarity on the basis of ethnicity. And this is also called ethno-nationalism or exclusionary ethno-nationalism. Another type of nationalism is populist nationalism, which tends to be highly polarizing and divisive, and denies the legitimacy of alternative political positions. So from when the virus first emerged to where we are now, with restrictions easing in some places and second waves building up in others, we've seen ethno-nationalism playing out everywhere and ethno-nationalism as both exclusionary and populist. For example, U.S. President Trump called the coronavirus the Chinese virus and uh, then local travel advisory and later national borders were closed down, as we've discussed uh, extensively um, just a couple of minutes ago. And numerous national leaders, such as Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban, but also voices from political and underground far-right groups, for instance in Germany and Serbia, explicitly claimed that the spread of the virus was linked to immigration. And some used resulting policies to bolster their argument that indeed migration should be restricted and borders should be closed. Also in the context of supplying medical equipment and staff, we saw an initial response where even preceding border closings, international export of masks and other tools was stopped and a sentiment of everyone for themselves really prevailed. And, of course, we cannot neglect the fact that a country may reasonably choose to keep some equipment for itself without nationalist intentions. But the national rhetoric of heads of states made it clear that they will do everything in their power to protect their citizens, the nation first, which clearly sends and has sent an ethno-nationalist message. This was, of course, picked up by Eurosceptics, um, but also pro-EU leaders, respectively, and has been used to either question, on the one hand, or support, on the other hand, um, the purpose and functioning of the EU as a whole, and to question whether international solidarity in general is possible or not. A leader of a Polish ultra-nationalist group said that the EU had been unmasked by the pandemic, a union undone by the initial national hoarding of medical supplies and refusal of wealthy northern states such as Germany and the Netherlands to consider corona bonds to share the debt burden of harder-hit countries like Italy, And a Serbian politician said that the crisis caused by the coronavirus epidemic shows once again that the EU is unable to function and that the values on which it is based are absent in practice. Quite harsh words. (laughs) These were of course picked up by international, these were of course picked up by intergovernmental organizations like the European Union and the World Health Organization. Um, and led to a series of heated debates around the risk of pursuing exclusionary and thereby short-sighted measures and the need for showing European, international and global solidarity. And soon after this, um, governments across the world actually formulated individual strategies that assured cooperation and assured others of their intention for solidarity and mutual support, which could then be seen in medical staff, equipment, know-how and even patients being transferred across national borders. But it still remains to be seen whether the solidarity will be further realized through actions that are not only self-serving or look good, but demonstrate real commitment, however that would look like. A contentious question in this regard is whether equitable distribution of vaccines, for example, uh, will be ensured, or whether countries will indeed pursue an us-first agenda. And Barry will talk about this a little bit more um, in the next section. But I want us to reflect a little bit more on the dichotomies I mentioned earlier, uh, nationalism versus international solidarity, freedom versus restriction, and democracy versus dictatorship. So as Barry mentioned earlier, there are many well-organized groups that wholeheartedly oppose most of their government's COVID policies. And here it almost seems like some people seem to group together the notions of ethno-nationalism, personal liberties and democracy, and position themselves in contrast to the government, the liberal media and the scientific elite, saying that those make a mistake in showing international solidarity and imposing COVID restrictions and are trying to establish a COVID dictatorship. It's going to be really interesting, but also very frightening to see how different groupings spreading across the entire ideological spectrum are coming together under those slogans. And generally, polls are showing a decline in support for far-right political parties in Europe and people's desire to indeed be free and even more freely um, and move more freely across Europe. But it's still likely that the narratives used in this pandemic will further mainstream ethno-nationalist rhetoric in politics and in society more broadly.
2: what's interesting here to look at is actually the humanitarian aid that's been coming out from different countries of the world. So if we zoom in, um, we can see that China has been at the center of this pandemic from the get-go, starting from the Wuhan outbreak, you know, in December of last year, and then really moving forwards. Um, China has been sharing their humanitarian assistance, and by March 31st of this year, it's offered 20 countries and four international organizations with various surgical masks, um, N95 uh, masks, respirators, protective suits, and other various assistance, including loans. But um, there is a greater question that's pretty much on um, really related to this topic, and that's whether these contributions are shows of altruistic solidarity or whether they are a way of, for these powers to extend their soft power. So I think power play really comes uh, into question here. And it's really interesting to look at it from the general perspective of what's going on in international affairs and basically how different countries that are important actors in the international sphere are reacting to this. So as the pandemic has been getting some speed, um, major players in the world have been using uh, their soft power and looking to increase their use of soft power to aid and fulfill their foreign policy goals. And we can see that in a couple of different ways. So, for example, the European Union has really been trying to prove that the European values do exist That they are still present despite the decline that we've been seeing in the last decade but also to show solidarity among members of the european union and countries outside of it we have china on the other hand that we've said is really extensively giving humanitarian aid all around the globe not just in asia but also in europe and it's in a way trying to perhaps also change the narrative as not the country that's responsible for this but the country that is actually the solution to this global problem that we're facing today But you also have countries, a major power like Russia, that's using modest resources um, to really maximize their effect and their presence. Um, For example, we've had instances of Russian military vehicles driving through Italy, which on one hand um, did help the Italian society in a way by really giving them some medical aid when they really needed it most. But in also other way, we can see it as a bit of a flaunting of Russian military power because indeed these were military vehicles. Um, And then we have the US, which under Trump has been largely absent, which isn't really that common for them. I want to take one example to kind of zoom in further. And we're going to talk about something that's been in the media called as coronavirus diplomacy. And I want to focus on a country um, that's very close to me because I was born and raised here. Um, and that's Serbia in the Western Balkans. So um, beginning of March, mid-March, Serbia actually announced the state of emergency. And Serbia's position is very geopolitically significant. It's at the crossroad between East and West. Um, It's a country that's developing and is surrounded by developing countries, Um, but also it's a country that's on a journey to EU accession and has very strong ties with other major actors across the world, such as Russia and now increasingly China. So on the same day when Serbia actually announced the state of emergency, the president of the EU commission, uh, Ursula von der Leyen, suggested that there should be a ban on exports on all medical equipment from the European Union. And this was faced by major um, outlashes from the Serbian leadership saying that EU solidarity and European solidarity simply doesn't exist and this is going to be the case. And this is where actually China stepped in. They saw an opportunity and they decided to take it. Um, They've been at the forefront of the assistance to Serbia during the pandemic. Um, But this is where the peculiarity begins. China has given a lot of humanitarian aid to Serbia. They have sent uh, planes with both staff and equipment. And this has been extremely publicized in the media and Uh, wider throughout cities. We've had billboards in Serbia's capital, Belgrade, saying thank you, brothers, to our Chinese counterparts. Um, And also in crisis staff meetings, the president, the prime minister, and the leadership of the crisis staff have invited on multiple occasions the Chinese medical personnel and the ambassador of China to sit there and give their expertise. Um, So it's really been at the forefront. On the other hand, when we actually look at the data, we can see that the European Union has been a stronger contributor to Serbia throughout this pandemic. So not only has there been a 7.5 million in aid, um, but there's also been more than 200 um, million euros in grants and another 250 million euros to help build and equip medical um, facilities over the last years. There's also been almost a hundred million euros that has been pledged by the EU for um, alleviating coronavirus effects. However, this has received borderline no media attention. Um, It's actually been even been denounced in the media by leadership. And the perpetual narrative is that China is really now our big help. Um, Russia also stepped in here And they also did the same thing. Um, They were sending military uh, aircrafts with medical aid, which was faced by a big outlash in Russia itself, with the citizens claiming that Russia itself does not have enough to sustain itself, its medical structure. So why is that being sent to other countries? But when we look at it from a political perspective, it is in a way spreading your soft power and trying to get more footing on in countries that are significantly important, both historically and also um, geographically. In China's terms, this might be um, fostering good relations with Serbia, because it's on its uh, way to develop the Belt and Road Initiative. And this is not excluded to the Western Balkans. We've also seen this in Italy, where the EU has had an arguably delayed response and the neighboring countries were raising protectionist barriers to block the sale of equipment among countries in the European Union. Um, While the solidarity came primarily from Germany, um, it came seemingly too late. Um, Russia also sent these military equipment and medics, and China sent aid as well, and this was very well taken. It was, again, very publicized. And this has led to a change in public opinion. So there's been an uh, SVG poll in Italy that was done during the pandemic, and now 52% of the pollers have uh, said that they actually see China as a friendly country, which is a 42% jump from last year. So last year China was at 10% friendly, and now it's at 52. It's the same with Russia that jumped from 15 to 32, um, whereas the US who's been virtually absent from this global discussion and solidarity um, has gone down to 17 from 29. The interesting shift is within the European Union itself. Um, Germany is now seen as hostile by 45% of Polers. Um, The same is with France. It's seen as the enemy of the Italian people by 38% of the people who were polled. Um, the same with the UK, who is now at 17% with negative reviews, to put it that way. And this all is really being, uh, building on a on a historical issue and other things that have been going on, and namely the Eurozone crisis that we've had in the last decade. So this has really been adding fuel to the fire.
0: So Andrea, that's um really interesting overview of kind of the global power play um happening in various kind of countries and how, you know, the the question between true altruism versus um, it being a means, the support and the help and the aid being a means of kind of extending the soft power. If we just zoom into China and the case of, of, of Serbia then specifically, what do you think they have to gain?
2: That's actually really an important part because um, the Western Balkans are a developing region. And what we've seen happening Mm -hmm. and coming out of China in the last 15, 20 years is this um, development aid uh, in a way that they do development aid. So you know that there's been a lot of controversy about how they're building infrastructure, but then you end up paying for it. So you are opening practically, uh, you're entering a market that's... uh, rather free and still has a lot to be built on. So I think that's pretty significant. It's it's in a way um, similar, in my opinion, to what they've been doing in the African continent as well. You know, uh-huh. there's a lot of this development aid, a lot of building of infrastructure, a lot of strengthening countries there, because at the end of the day, it really does benefit them both economically, but also socially, politically and both domestically and on an international level. Um, And I think that's really important, uh, especially because, you know, for many years, there has been a significant interplay of various major powers in the Western Balkans. You have the EU, you have Russia, you have the Americans, you have the United States. Now you have China as well. It's really a fertile ground for major power play. And it has been. That's just the history of the Western Balkans in the last few decades. Also, you know, even going back to World War I and World War II, it's a significant region, for a multitude of different reasons
1: that's really really interesting and um just to add on on Barry's question and what you said about what China has to gain, I think you you put it very um very nicely what uh, the western balkans have to offer and i think um for china specifically they've been uh doing this kind of aid um like you said in in uh, african states but also in other countries um within the eu where like you said the eu has not been um stepping up to the game um but i think it's also it's i think it's definitely definitely to increase um sort of a sphere of influence and to gain uh, economic um advantages um but i think it's also in an effort to weaken in a way um european cohesion or european cooperation because what you can see is that china by doing these bilateral um you know agreements or even trade you know partnerships and deals um actually european countries even countries that are part of the eu like greece are Sometimes even acting or voting against, for instance, sanctions, um, that the EU is trying to impose against China. And because, and, and Greece, all of a sudden, um, you know, because they're getting a port, you know, finance from China, they don't support, um, the overall stance of the EU. And I think this is a str- another strategic interest that, um, I think is, is that China is pursuing here. Um, Another thing I wanted to add about what you said about PR is de- definitely agree with uh, you know um sort of polishing the chinese image globally um but I think PR is also happening domestically uh for for china so and and this I think ties to the overall theme of this episode today which is nationalism right and I think it was very interesting to see how china but also other countries have been Using and communicating their successes in dealing with the virus and helping other countries to legitimize, you know, their governments, but also to say, oh, look, what we're doing—not just for you, um, you know, for our people, but also for people abroad—and I think this um, is a narrative that's being used um, internationally quite a lot. So when we talk about COVID responses, we often are quick to judge policies as either strict or too loose or trying to pursue geopolitical goals. Um, But of course, there is an element of actual risk when it comes to the health implications of COVID. And that's why in this section, we want to take a step back and look at what the actual risk of COVID is, and to what extent this um, perceived risk is shaping policies, and how people are responding to this risk and resulting policies. We all know that COVID is highly contagious and that, as a result, it spreads like a bushfire, especially when large groups of people come together. We also know that certain people are more likely to experience a severe form of the illness, long-term damages, and even death than others, like people above the age of 60, smokers, and people with pre-existing health conditions like diabetes. We've seen a wide range of policies, many taken at the national level, sometimes closing borders and restricting international travel. And a yardstick for such policies in the EU tends to be whether they are proportional to the threat, whether they are effective, and whether they contribute to addressing the risk in a unified and cooperative way. This is, of course, an ideal, and studies of nationalism and authoritarianism tell us oftentimes governments use times of crisis for their benefit, for example, to increase their executive powers, to restrict people's freedoms in the long term, and to push through legislation and actions that may otherwise be rejected by parliament. But we should be careful with making blanket statements about COVID responses only serving governments because that wouldn't be true at all. But we do want to look at some examples where this may have been the case.
2: So border control, as we've all seen, has been a widespread tool in tackling the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, As of now, 186 countries have introduced some form of border restrictions, despite there being very little scientific backing of this method. And I'll come back to that in a minute. Um, And... Contrastingly, only 127 countries have enacted social distancing, and in the cases where they have done, uh, it has been with weaker enforcement. So the issue of closing borders and limiting access to particular states is interesting for a multitude of reasons. As mentioned, science only shows it's effective uh, if it is introduced at the onset of the pandemic within a country. And we've seen it can be very effective, as it was in the cases of Taiwan and New Zealand, um, two countries that have closed their borders immediately after registering the first few cases. Yet in the majority of cases, stricter border control um, simply presents as an easy tool to readily assert the authority as it impacts relatively few nationals But satisfies the need of the state to appear to provide security. Basically, it's an easy way of saying, hey, look at us, we're actually doing something about this. But when we scratch the surface and look a little bit deeper into it, um, it makes sense. Don't get me wrong, it does. Um, The COVID-19 pandemic, if nothing, has been surrounded by a high degree of uncertainty, which means that You know, we don't have all of the information that we need to be able to come up with good policies. Policymakers lack this. There has been a lot of contradictions from the onset of how is it spread? How long does it stay in your system? Can you get reinfected? Who is a group that is at risk? Um, All of these things. And this um, uncertainty that we've been faced with since the beginning of this year, basically instigates fear and therefore it requires a quick and determined response for which many policymakers don't have sufficient evidence. So going back and closing borders, it actually is a good way of showing that there is an attempt to deal with the situation. However, this conversation about border control as a method of dealing with the virus is particularly interesting for one important reason, and that is its implications. Um, Border control is based on public opinion, um, and it lays on the impulses conditioned by an underlying script of creating an other that the state embraces. So in essence, it does uh, show the issue as an external issue, and that's problematic um, for multiple reasons, one being uh, that in this case, states take an externalized approach, um, which means that they scapegoat and this can lead to undercutting of the national will to fight the pandemic from within. So by creating an issue on the outside and saying, hey, that's something that's actually coming from outside of our country um, and closing the borders, people get this uh, false sense false sense of, of um, having dealt with it when that's actually not the case. It continues to spread within the nation's borders. Um, and by operating on the notions of othering, Um, the categories of people for whom the borders actually remain open or closed or are closed um, during the pandemic become deeply politicized. And I want to touch upon a quick example here um, from the United States, because it's very easy to pick examples from there. Um, On April 22nd, U.S. President Donald Trump signed an executive order to put a temporary ban on green cards for most immigrants. And this really affected international students who were finalizing their studies and were looking for employment in the US um, because it did not give them the opportunity to do do that. Um, And similarly, he had this comment on 23rd of June where he openly stated that a section of a concrete wall on the US-Mexico border, quote unquote, stopped COVID, stopped everything, (laughs) end quote, yeah. And I think this is very interesting because we know what his feelings and opinions and thoughts are on immigration. And it falls in line with his nationalist sentiments and previous executives' orders that he's had yeah. in terms of um, buy American, hire American. It, it seems like there is a high chance that this was used as a political tool to actually put forward his nationalist agenda that's been present in the U.S. for the past four years and it's realistically present all around the world. We've seen populist and nationalist leaders pop up all around the globe, including in Europe. So this is just one example that draws on that. Um, and I think this is very important to look at also the political motivations that are present behind border control.
0: I looked into kind of what happened to public opinion in in Europe. Um, you know, when all these various Government uh, restrictions came into place. Um, there's actually quite a interesting set of insights. Um, the Western Balkans is not, was not included in this survey that I read, but there's this specific survey and they, uh, took it around April. I think they surveyed around 7,000 people from, um, seven different European countries. So Denmark, France, Germany, Italy, Portugal, Netherlands, and the UK. And, um, the insights of it were, I don't know, quite interesting, but also I don't think you can extrapolate it to the rest of the world. Uh, it sounds like very European insight. So, for instance, on average, um, 68% of the people were, were overall kind of satisfied with, you know, government response, although depending on, uh, what restrictions, uh, were in place, um, and, um, kind of what policy measures were taken that, that, you know, that satisfaction was different. Um, the most approved measures, which is very interesting because they are kind of the most stringent ones, are the 14 day quarantine, um, the ban of public gatherings, um, and border closures that we just talked about. Um, so it's interesting that those very stringent ones were most approved. And then the measures that would least, least kind of, Approved is tr- suspension of public transport. I think obviously that probably is skewed by where you live, <laughs> um, and how you respond to that. The ban of medical expert. I think a lot of people thought it was, uh, unethical. Um, you know, using of mobile phone and, uh, data and tracking that, you know, for these various COVID tracking apps and also curve views, which all I suppose are interesting measures that were taken, you know, to various extents, but those were the least people who kind of didn't want those um, compared to the others. And you can also see within Europe kind of a north-south divide in terms of how people thought um, thought of these various measures. So people living in more southern countries, such as Portugal, Italy, and France, they were more okay with these various uh, restrictions compared to northern countries, so people living in Denmark and Germany and the Netherlands. And I, I think that's quite interesting again because those southern countries were countries with the most stringent um sort of restrictions compared to ho- Holland. Um I I can give the example of Holland where it was much, much less strict. Um obviously there were measures in place, but they were much, much more free. So it's it's quite interesting to see those opinions you know, these public opinions, and particularly if you think about how some of the rest of the world has been experiencing this and um, what they might think of it, and specifically how specific key events such as elections can make such a huge impact on whether these various restrictions are playing in your favor or not playing in your favor, really.
1: I think these different uh, attitudes towards restrictions also probably have something to do with the political. Um, attitudes or the pol- political culture and societal culture within those countries. Um, I personally don't know about um, the southern countries, but I do know that Germany and the Netherlands tends to tend to be quite liberal and sort of focused on individual freedoms. I think maybe Germany even more so than the Netherlands, um, especially when it comes to private data. You know, you mentioned one of the questions in the survey was, you um, Uh, mobile tracking and so on Um, I think those attitudes and maybe a rejection or fear of the state and state control definitely have something to do with this as well and it's also part of the of the narrative that people use Um, yeah like let's not be controlled let's not be you know um, restricted and and so on yeah
0: yeah i think it's definitely got to do with a lot of the political tradition in those countries it's just um interesting to see kind of the difference between how stringent the southern countries kind of policies have been and then still people kind of favoring those quite stringent
1: um guidelines just thinking that another uh, aspect that might might play a role in this or might help explain these differences is the perceived threat uh and the actual threat that it posed i mean if you look at the numbers of people that died in italy and that at some point you know corpses had to be transported everyone was shocked by those images um, i think probably people living in in countries affected like this um I think they'd actually, <laughs> I, I've spoken to people from India where numbers are also really, really high. And to them, the debates that we have here, although politically they're justified, they might also seem a little bit privileged, right? Because yeah. it seems like COVID is not that big a threat to us. Um, just maybe because population density is not as high and hygiene is a bit, uh, is a bit better and so on. But yeah, I think it really depends on how you perceive the disease.
0: of zoom out and look at um, nationalism um, from a more kind of global perspective and um, from more of a perspective of competition between various countries. Because initially, I suppose when the COVID crisis um, started, initially most countries were kind of inward looking. With their reactions so they would announce kind of unilaterally they, that they'd close borders or you know that they have uh, stay-at-home restrictions and it it was most of it kind of putting themselves um, at the forefront in everything and self-interest ahead of everything and I think you know for instance, within the EU, that was quite evident when, kind of, Germany temporarily put a export ban on 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 um, these protective personal protective equipment, um, as well as um, I think France did it as well, which was then met by quite a huge outcry that that was not that that shouldn't be done, especially not within the EU. But I think also another area where we can see this kind of self-interest besides kind of your your the general um covid measures being in place is the vaccine and the development of the vaccine really and uh, you know so if you just mentioned about this concept of vaccine nationalism but i think we've all heard about the various efforts you know to develop a vaccine um and to find kind of a way to stop the the spread of the virus but essentially In the, in the initial status, it almost turned into some sort of kind of pharmaceutical and technological tech into some sort of pharmaceutical and technological race between various countries and between mostly between various large powers in order to be kind of the first one who finds the vaccine. And that way, I mean, intentionally or unintentionally hold the leverage over the rest of the world and the concept of vaccine nationalism really refers to kind of giving your own citizens priority access to the vaccine over others i think one particular country where we really heard that rhetoric was um, obviously the us with with donald trump but um looking looking at kind of some of the efforts that were taking um, on a global stage to kind of combat this vaccine nationalism. Um, an effort was led by uh, the World Health Organization where a coalition of 156 countries kind of came together and agreed that they'd have a um, COVID-19 vaccine allocation plan. So it, it's called COVAX. And basically the aim of the plan is to enable kind of a rapid and equitable Global distribution of any kind of vaccine that will be found. And the guidelines are that, you know, it will go to those uh, parts of society or those citizens that are in the most vulnerable groups, such as uh, people working in, you know, in frontline health. Um, be that elderly people, etc. It's very much up to the discretion of, you know, the country itself, where they put it. But it's 3% um, of the population will be able to get access to it. And then the idea is that over time that will build up to 20%. And really this this initiative came about to, A, combat this vaccine nationalism, but also to help countries that, you know, weren't able to either develop or don't have enough... um don't have the economic means uh, to, you know, to have access to these to to this vaccine. And obviously now we know that you know a, quite a high potential vaccine might be there. It'd be interesting to see kind of how that how that plays out and how the scheme will will work out and whether it will actually work in this kind of cooperative effort. But I suppose that's kind of one place where we can see this sort of nationalism and competition playing out on the global stage. I think it's also really interesting if we uh, have a look at but outside of the world of public health and more generally, um, into the world of kind of how the economy and how business has been affected by, by the crisis. I think all over the world, we are kind of hearing now more and more, uh, that people want to go kind of for less globalized world, um, more localized. We've all seen kind of what has happened, um, because of the high, um, dependence on these global supply chains where that now have been completely disrupted and have also completely disrupted a lot of businesses and industries so it has really prompted a lot of uh companies to rethink their business models and to rethink whether they should you know produce locally or produce at least closer to home and not offshore um and really kind of create partnerships that are, again, less, less globalized in order to avoid that and in order to avoid that dependency. Um, in particular, I suppose the example of China is pertinent here because obviously, you know, everyone, everyone knows how much is being manufactured in China or how much, um, uh, there's a dependency on china both in terms of what they the, what again what they manufacture and the supply chains but also in terms of i suppose the the debt that some countries have um that china has has put out and you know i think that that dependency and that rethinking of um kind of as a nation and that could be any country how can I create my own competitive ad- advantage and how can I kind of decrease my dependency on others is, is very interesting. And in particular, um, kind of if we look at it, look at it in the context that we are now, where technology is so key and where people, or where there's this kind of technological revolution, I suppose, or digital revolution. I think people, those countries that are trying to tap into that, Will probably think about it very differently now after the COVID crisis compared to how they will think about it uh, before. So, for instance, again, I'm going to raise the example of China. After kind of to combat with the effects of the crisis, they apparently have this 1.4 trillion plan um, to kind of ramp up any new digital infrastructure, 5G, AI, data centers, cloud. The works to to kind of a help the economic recovery of the country, but also be kind of reduce its technological reliance on on on, on the rest of the world. Um, and I think these things that uh, talk about how specific countries react to the effects of COVID, how their business well how their business how their industries will be restructured um, what kind of recovery plans they put in place where they put their money Um, in terms of those recovery plans i think those will really determine kind of a their advantages vis-a-vis other countries but also more generally um, who will be competing with who and on and regarding what what makes it really interesting for me is kind of which countries will come out of this whole situation and how they will come out of it and what will be their priorities, um, both, both economically, um, geopolitically, um, and kind of just in general, like what will be their grand vision? Cause I think this is a time to reinvent yourself. Um, and I think you, what, what we've really seen is that if you, that a lack of leadership really sets you back from, being able to define how what what's next. Usually in our episodes we have a segment called uh, "How do we solve for it?" I'm not quite sure whether <laughs> we will be able to solve international cooperation <laughs> in in the next um, next couple of minutes. But I would like us to reflect on the question that we started this episode which, with, which is. Is COVID driving the world towards more nationalism? Um, And if so, what can we do about it? Or more, more, what can we do about the effects that that will have?
2: From my personal point of view, I don't think necessarily um, the COVID pandemic is driving the world towards nationalism. I think nationalism is alive and well, and has been for a Mm -hmm. while um and this is just something that's highlighting it's a it's definitely a symptom of that disease but it's also a vicious circle that keeps feeding into that um something that really for me is important in this thing is that this pandemic did actually highlight the age of division that we're currently in right now and this ties into a multitude of things that we've spoken about you know throughout this conversation and sophie at one point really said Um, you know, the media bubbles that we're in. And I think that's something that's pretty important in this case is that there is a global trend that is a lack of communication between groups that are with different opinions, with different views, with different beliefs. And that just leaves us polarized constantly and continuously. You know, easiest example, just look at the US presidential election that has gone. It's It's very easy to see that line in between. And I think this amplified with all of these technological advances that we have, like digital communication and social media, this group thinking um, really reinforces and feeds into the repetition of these differences. And I think to be optimistic in this situation, um, while this, you know, I read a book recently, and it's pretty fascinating. It's more of an essay, but I don't know if you're familiar with the Turkish-British writer um, Elif Shafak, And she wrote an essay at the beginning of the coronavirus pandemic which i really recommend everyone reads and it's called how to stay sane in an age of division and it's fantastic because it reflects on a lot of the things that we've spoken about and a bunch of other stuff but um she really talks about this notion of group narcissism that lies at the core of all of these things that we're facing um this tribal mentality incorporated with my group is better than yours, my group is more valuable, my group is right and holds the correct views and you don't. And that for me is the basis of all of these things that I perceive as negative and nationalism and xenophobia and totalitarianism. So I think rather than nationalism driving the world towards the pandemic, I think the pandemic is highlighting it and feeding into it. But I think it's present continuously throughout all of the things that we're experiencing right now. And, you know, going back to the basis of what I said, we need to bridge those divides again. And unfortunately, as much as I wish I had an an answer to this, because my life would be extremely easy and I'd probably be a billionaire by now um, Mm -hmm. or, you know, world leader number one, but I don't. So it seems like we all just have to actively listen to each other and be nicer as simple as it sounds i love that <laughs> yeah but it's so true
1: <laughs> yeah i mean well yeah i think you put, you yeah captured a lot of things um i'm thinking that nationalism yes it is growing and and like you said it it uh, the pandemic has highlighted or emphasized um, the sentiment, and maybe it's also gaining, um, you know, more legitimacy and, and, um, you know, it's, it's going to be more of a thing in, in mainstream politics. But, um, I think a big, bigger problem actually, like you said, um, is divisiveness or maybe sort of a, I would say, uh, I would put it as a disenfranchisement maybe from government and like a general um feeling and 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 uh, opinion of not being maybe represented by the government not really recognizing the legitimate le- the legitimacy of the government and the elites and i think that's a problem that really spans across yeah all you know all ideologies and all of society no matter the age and and no- I mean, no matter really the geography, I think as well. Although maybe geography might, uh, might be a thing depending on whether you live in an urban environment or whether you live on the countryside, because depending on that, you feel like you're more involved or less. Um, I don't know really how to solve for it either. I think, I mean, one, one thing I believe in is the, the possibility and the, the potential of Increasing political engagement. And something that I often feel is that we don't really have a proper culture anymore of, um, of discussing policies or discussing politics. Um, you know, like at a, at a, I think as at an interpersonal level, maybe, but like, how can there be almost like a connection between the average person and the policymaker or, or politicians other than in, you know, some, like boring council hearings or something like that you know where people talk about the highway uh, that's going to be built next year um like you know like there's no not really a connection and and also when it comes to such big questions like globalization like you cannot have a local hearing about you know globalization or maybe you should i don't know maybe that's the answer um but yeah i i personally don't see that currently happening yeah mm. Um, I think my two cents on this is that,
0: um, like any crisis, we are left with winners and losers and it's winners and losers, both on the national level. So citizens, uh, and it's also winners and losers in the international level countries. And I think a hundred percent kind of, um, echo the sentiment around polarization but i think it's this this division between winners and losers that is creating this polarization and i think in order to therefore solve for this polarization one of the key things to do is resolve these 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 the um, inequality between these winners and losers and this is very high level and obviously the winners and the losers are always different and in different circumstances but I think uh, we definitely can we definitely know that there will be for instance on a national level a whole bunch of group of people that will come out of this crisis really economically disadvantaged and that will create resentment in society and it is solving for that resentment that will I think be one way to you know at least a little bit diminish that polarization on a international level I think you know the winners and losers you'll see is those countries that will be able to benefit economically for from uh, what has happened be that either by you know they've had the right industries or um they they have the right recovery plan in place but it's I mean, I think on an international level, it's going to be much harder to solve for that polarization there. I think it's going to be much more about um, finding pragmatic areas to work together where interests align um, and where I suppose political ideologies or values um, are not contentious um, and build up kind of relationships again bit by bit through that. I think people must be just very careful about kind of a rebalancing of power that I think will happen. Um, It'd be interesting to see what the Biden presidency will do, how that will reinstate specific kind of relationships with different countries. Um, But then at the same time, going back to the beginning of this episode where we talked about, you know, soft power of various other larger, you know, uh, countries such as China, Russia, et cetera, be... Interesting to see how that pans out, but yeah, I think why don't we start on a national level, solve solve for those um, for solve for those those differences that will exist, not by you know reducing the success of the winners, but by just finding a way to elevate those that have lost out thanks to this crisis, and by really trying to come out of it together and you know. I don't, in, in, I suppose it's a bit weird to end the episode on this note, but in that sense, a bit of nationalism, you know, a bit of national pride, a bit of, um, wearing this together. I don't think that will hurt. But obviously nationalism as the way we talked about it in the episode will hurt. So patriotism
1: yeah. is the way Yeah, <laughs>
0: exactly. <laughs> patriotism. That's what we mean. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us today, Andrea. Um, Thank you. really, really appreciated your your views and all the kind of anecdotes that you uh, you brought in. Definitely uh, great to hear from you, so thanks again. Thank you for listening to the Currently Thinking podcast, where we talk about issues that move the world.
1: If you liked what you heard, come say hi to us on Instagram at currentlythinkingpodcast and let us know what you thought of today's episode. As always, keep being bold. Much love, everyone.